Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Well, we're going to turn to a, uh, sure, a typical Advent passage this morning. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Uh, this uh, year for our Advent season, we're going to look at a few different passages out of the book of Revelation. And so this morning, I invite you to turn to the first chapter in the book of Revelation. We'll read verses 4 through 8, and we're kind of going to be focusing in on I think you'll see it. When we get there on on verse 7. But let's read Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Grass withers, the flower fades. Word of our God stands forever. So this morning, as I said, we're beginning our Advent series and working through a few passages in the book of Revelation. Now, that might seem a little surprising to you because the book of Revelation is not typically thought of, I don't suppose, as something you're going to work through in the Advent season. Um, typically, Revelation's famous for what's referred to, you know, the, the coming apocalypse. You'll hear apocalyptic language. And most people, when they think apocalypse, you think of like some giant battle that's coming. Like that's apocalyptic is some sort of a giant climactic, horrendous world war, whatever apocalypse that's going to happen sometime in the future. But really apocalypse, the word just means unveiling. It doesn't mean battle. I mean, Armageddon, there's the battle of Armageddon that's, that's pictured in the book of Revelation. But really apocalypse just, which is revelation, just means revealing or unveiling. So this whole, this apocalypse, this vision, this revelation of Jesus is really meant to be a, an unveiling that we would see what's really going on. As opposed to Revelation being a book that confuses everyone, it's actually written to be a book that explains a lot of what's going on using pictures using imagery, using apocalyptic language, but it's actually supposed to bring clarity. (laughs) So you can see how really our modern church, we mess up the book of Revelation quite a bit. Because if you walk away from it 
with a giant chart of all these different puzzle pieces and how they all fit together and this giant vast uh, inner working of this and that and nations and all of this stuff and you, you read the text and you're like, I don't know how that, how this goes into that. That's because the, the giant picture they're painting is bringing more confusion than clarity. And that's not what we want when we read the book of Revelation. There's a, there is the heartbeat behind this is unveiling that we would know better. Sadly, the revelation or the apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus, is a book of the Bible that is supposed to pull back the curtains on the reality of what's going on that instead is used to hang curtains up of confusion and, and, and sort of uh, dissuading or, or, or distracting our attention from what really is important. So for our time together, we're going to look at four different passages from the book of Revelation and how they keep our focus pointed toward the coming of Christ. Like the book is, is all forward-looking to there is this great event on the horizon. The coming of Jesus Christ is on its way. This is, this is the, the message of Revelation is to keep us focused towards that end. So I don't want to disappoint you, but just to get this out of the way, here's a few of the things we won't be discussing when it comes to the book of Revelation. We won't be discussing, this is kind of a hot-button issue, but this is not in the book of Revelation. We won't be discussing how vaccines are the mark of the beast. We won't be discussing which figures are Trump, who's Putin, which one's Biden, where they find them in the book of Revelation. We won't be discussing that. If, we won't be doing any of that. We won't be talking about the seven-year tribulation, at what point, which... Which figure right now is the Antichrist that we need to be watching out for? And various other hot-button topics you may hear that this book is about. We're not going to discuss them not because we're afraid to or not because, you know, we don't have thoughts on the things. But they're actually, that's not the point of the book of Revelation. That's missing the point. That is missing the point. We're not going to discuss them not because we're afraid, but because they are not the point of the book of Revelation. I like one, how one Christian author puts it. He wrote a book on, on Revelation, uh, The Returning King, I believe is what it's called, Vern Poitras. And he says this about the whole scope of the book of Revelation. He says, God is at the center of Revelation. He's referencing chapters 4 and 5. You can read, that's kind of the centerpiece, the throne room image of, of Christ, of God on the throne ruling. God is at the center of Revelation. We must start with Him and with the contrast between him and his satanic opponents. If instead we try right away to puzzle out details, it is as if we tried to use a knife by grasping it by the blade instead of the handle. We are starting at the wrong end. Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. Don't try to puzzle it out. Don't become preoccupied with isolated details. Rather, become engrossed in the overall story. There's a picture being painted here using, yes, fantastic language. Oh, this isn't, this isn't his quote anymore, sorry. <laughs> using this incredible, you know, images of beasts with all these horns and dragons and all of these cataclysmic. It's all this imagery pointing to a bigger picture. It's vivid imagery trying to communicate a very basic reality. He says, don't try to puzzle it out. Returning to the quote, don't become preoccupied with isolated details. Rather, become engrossed in the overall story. Praise the Lord. Cheer for the saints. Detest the beast. 
long for the final victory. So, influenced largely by Poitras, I'm going to say a lot of the same things when we look at the book of Revelation. It's a great book to read, and I, I mean that. I know people avoid the book of Revelation because it's so confusing, all these weird pictures. But if you can, it's, it's interesting. I've heard some pastors will talk about taking the book of Revelation into like a, a kid's Sunday school class. And you read Revelation out loud to adults, and they're all trying to see where this fits here and, where, and try to puzzle it all out, and they walk away confused. But you read it to a kid, and they're like, yeah, there's dragons, and there's beasts, and there's these things on horses. There are these warriors that beat up the beasts, and it's amazing. It's this great story. It's like a Tolkien, it's like a Tolkien book, you know, like all these incredible images. They love it. But it's when we get older, we become more sophisticated, and we think we've got to understand all the little details that it becomes confusing. We get lost in the details instead of seeing the bigger picture. If you read the opening of this letter, it's clear this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It is a book written to highlight him, to call us to put our attention upon him, to look toward him, not to get lost in all these other figures, but ultimately those figures serve a purpose of looking to Jesus, looking to the king. And so I offer this basic summary on the whole of the book of Revelation, really, basic summary is that Jesus reigns. Again, that's, that's Revelation 4 and 5. You see him on the throne. Jesus reigns, but don't be surprised by suffering. Fight against the dragon. Now, I almost said they're fighting against evil because we try to categorize that as adults, like dragons aren't real. Yeah, well, kind of, yeah. The dragon's real. <laughs> the enemy is real. And, and our call is to fight the dragon, to fight the enemy. Jesus reigns, don't be surprised by suffering, fight against the dragon, and long for the king's return. Long for the king's return. The dragon, suffering, persecution, trials, uh, inwards, uh, read letters to the churches, in, uh, internal strife and struggle and sinfulness still exist. We ourselves fall short of our glorious uh, purpose that we want to live out. Sin remains, struggle remains, persecution remains. Long for the king's return. There is, if you read all the way through the book, right, the, we'll get there in three more weeks, the final uh, the final state of all things, the restoration of all things, the consummation of the age, however you want to say it, that the king does return and sets up his glorious kingdom. I'm getting ahead of myself. But that's, that's where we are going towards. And so we long and look towards that return. Revelation is an Advent book. It is a book of hopeful promise that in the midst of a broken and dangerous world, the king is still in charge and is on the move to bring about the, his final restoration. That's what Advent really is about, right? This is not just four weeks of celebrating Christmas, right? Sometimes you think that Advent is well, but we got the tree out, we got presents. It's just four weeks of Christmas. No, that is not what Advent is about. It's an intentional season of longing. The reason why we, are start, we start at four weeks out from Christmas Day is it's supposed to have this anticipation. There's a great day coming. It's not here yet. It's on its way. And so we long for it. We look, we look toward it. We, 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 are, we have our gaze set upon it and we anticipate it and are eager and yearning for it, but aware that it's not here yet, yet motivated and longing for it. It's an expanded moment of 
expectation. It's an intentional season of longing. It's like, it's like the governor in the Christian in, uh, engine, not the governor like the, the head of state, but like, you know, you got your motor has a governor in it where it, it keeps the RPMs from going too high. That's my simple understanding of how a governor works. That's, that's generally correct, right? That it's in, it keeps the RPMs down so you don't go so fast. Your little kid's four-wheeler always has a governor on it so that way they can't go 60 miles an hour. It keeps them at 20. Advent season is like a governor. It, while the rest of the world is going down the expressway towards Christmas, you know, the presence and Jesus is born, we, we, we idle back and we, we, we appreciate the journey towards the day the king shows up. Because that's the reality of our existence. We live in this in-between time of the already and the not yet. Christ has come. The incarnation has happened. He has done the work of salvation. He has finished the work ascended to, the he to heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father, from whence he will come again to judge the living and the dead. We're in the already accomplished, but they not yet fulfilled. And so we live in this period of in-between time, of waiting for the coming of Jesus. And so Advent is like the governor in our Christian motor that idles back and feels the longing, the waiting, the expectation, the eagerness, the, the, the thrill, this great day is coming. I've got a couple of little kids, and they picture it for me so far still every Christmas, right? Um, we got our Christmas tree up day after Thanksgiving, which is when you oh, actually did the day of, didn't we? Right? We did it wrong. We didn't wait till Friday. We did it Thursday. But anyway, we got it up, and we put presents. And it's, they, they both have three presents underneath there right now, just three little measly presents. There's nothing. Like, I look at that as an adult, and I think, that's it. But they're so excited. And they got four weeks, like they woke up Saturday morning and just were like staring at their presents, shaking them, thinking about them. And we got them wrapped up with all the tape, you can, you know, so they can't unwrap them. Um, but there's this anticipation. And th that's a picture of what the Christian Advent season is about. Something great is coming. It's not here yet, but we can see it and we've been promised it and we have, we have some semblance of it here. But it's just, it's not fully here yet. He has promised to return, the king is coming. He's not a man that he should lie. So as his people, we eagerly anticipate his final coming with an intentional season of heightened expectation. So with that, then our text this morning, John opens this book by giving a word of blessing to those who would read the book and then a greeting to the seven churches that take up the first two chapters, chapters two and three. So this morning we're looking at this greeting and specifically starting the last half of verse 5 where he gives this praise to him who does certain things, loves us, has freed us from our sins by his blood, made us into a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. He there gives this praise of, of all of these things that Jesus done. This is an expression of glory given to him. And this, this glory given to him comes for a reason, right? Because he loves us and has freed us from our sins, that which held us in bondage, our sin, that brought us death, that brought us condemnation. We've been freed out from this bondage by what? By his blood. Christ has gone to the cross. He has taken the sins of his people upon himself that they might be freed and liberated from the penalty of their sins, from the punishment of death. He has made them then a kingdom, has given them a belonging, a citizenship into his kingdom. 
And so John describes him this way, right? One who loved us. And this alone is an incredible statement. And we could camp out there a lot longer. But really our, our focus is verse 7, right? Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Which brings us to our big idea this morning. There's, there's the big idea. The king is coming with good news for his people. The king is coming with good news for his people. That word there coming, right, in verse 7, behold, he is coming. If you read the Latin Vulgate, if you, I'm sure you all, when you get home this afternoon and get out your Latin Vulgate and you read it, you'll see that word there is adventus, which is the Latin where we get the term advent, which just means coming. That, that's where we get the term adventus from the Latin. Coming is this, this reality of there is this longing for the coming, this advent season, the coming of Jesus. That there, there is this longing from the get-go. In the book of Revelation, we see this emphasis that this book is written in the expectation of this solid promise. Christ is coming. He is going to return. Now, the statement of him coming uh, with the clouds, that's an interesting, like we've, we've heard that so much and Maybe you've sang in, in your uh, churches in past, uh, the days of Elijah, behold, he comes riding on the clouds. Anyone else know that song besides me and my wife? I, anyway, don't look it up. You, yeah, you remember it? Okay. All right. Um, so we've sung it. We kind of hear, oh, yeah, he's coming with the clouds. Okay, yeah, right. I hear that all the time. Jesus is coming with the clouds. Well, that's actually an Old Testament uh, illusion. If you want to open your, go back into your Old Testament to the book of Daniel, um, Revelation does this a ton, and there are all sorts of references back to the apocalyptic literature of the Old Testament, places of Ezekiel and Daniel, and all of these references that aren't necessarily explicit, but they're, they're, they're right in there. So if you turn back to Daniel chapter 7, this idea of be, he's coming with the clouds, right? Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Well, that's, what's that in reference to? Well, you go back to Daniel chapter 7, and verse 13 says this. This is Daniel giving his vision, right? He has his vision. I saw in the night visions, apocalyptic literature here. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Jesus' favorite description of himself is son of man. He doesn't say that because, oh, I'm the son of a, I'm a, I'm a real human. Often that's the way it's portrayed. Jesus is not saying I'm an actual human when he says I'm the son of man. He's referencing this, this future coming son of man. Behold, with the cloud of heavens there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him who... This one that comes on the clouds, like a son of man. And to him, this one was given, what? Dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. There is incredible promise here. This one is going to come on the clouds. Why it's important that Jesus is coming on the clouds is he's not, he's not just some, you know, Joe Blow showing up. This is the eternal son of man who's before the ancient of days who's going to set up an everlasting kingdom. Daniel says this hundreds of years before Jesus, thousands of years before us now today, he has this vision of the son of man coming in the clouds to establish his kingdom. It is a kingdom that will not be destroyed. His dominion will have 
be an everlasting dominion. Why is this important? Because all of our waiting and longing for the return of the king is not meant to be some heartless and stoic waiting. It is not like, I'm going to insult a category of people here, but it is not like the people who sit around for the mailman to show up at their mailbox to get mail they don't really care about. <laughs> it's not that kind of waiting. There's a lot of those, believe it or not. <laughs> Tony's shaking his head, yes. <laughs> who wait around for mail they don't really care about to show up, but they just want to know what it is, and so they're waiting. They're waiting for the coming of the mailman, but they're not all that excited about it. That is not what this is. That is not the kind of waiting we're talking about. Because this is not just somebody coming along we don't really aren't that interested in, isn't going to do anything that great. We're waiting for the king who has an everlasting dominion, who's going to establish a kingdom that will last forever with his people, with his priests that he has made into his kingdom. We are not just passively, heartlessly, stoically waiting. It is a heartfelt and joyful and expectant longing because he will return and he brings good news for his people. Now back in Revelation, you do see that this is a sobering passage. Um, verse 7, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen, that amen, so be it. It's like, kind of like, okay, then yes, yes and amen, so be it. Even though it's going to produce this wailing on account of those who pierced him, even so, amen. When Christ returns, every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and opposed him and all who did from every tribe will, and they will wail on account of him. Now, some commentators will say this wailing is because um, they were sad that he was pierced. Like, oh, this is terrible. So they're wailing because Jesus was, was, was killed, murdered on a cross. That's a, a small portion of them say that. I think more likely, and most commentators that I read would say that actually this is a, a mourning because the king has shown up and they recognize they are not right with this king. They were part of his being pierced. They were part of his uh, the re rebellion against him. And he has shown up and it is now too late. And there is wailing because the judge has come. He's established their kingdom and they know they're not a part of it. They know they're not a part of it. Of the king. There is a real finality to the return of Christ. He is not coming again to just hang out for a while. He is coming to establish his forever kingdom, which means that those who are not with Jesus will be judged and found wanting upon his return. There will be legit wailing on the behalf of those who denied Jesus on the part of those who persisted in their rebellion against God, Jesus does not bring good news for them. But Jesus, his return, he brings good. The king is coming with good news for his people. For those who are his, he comes as their king to establish their forever kingdom. Who are his people? Well, I think John gives us a clue to that just to the sentence before this, right? Who are his people? Those whom he's loved and he has freed from their sins by his own blood. Those who by faith have looked to Jesus and have said, I do not, des I deserve nothing from you, God, except your judgment, your wrath, your condemnation. 
but you sent your son, which was what we celebrate on Christmas Day, right? You sent your son, put, took on flesh, lived the righteous life I should have lived, but I didn't, died the death that I deserve upon a cross, so that by his blood my sins might be forgiven. I might be washed clean. I might be adopted into your family, given the righteousness of Christ, made one of your own. For those whom he has loved and freed from their sins by his blood, he has made them a part of his kingdom. Those who have been freed from their sins by the blood of Jesus are his people. And the entrance into his kingdom is through his shed blood, through faith in the work of Christ, as he gave his life in the place of sinners. Is that returning king your king? Like at some level, we just have to ask that question when we sit together. Is that king who shed his blood for the sins of his people, is he your king? He is, in one sense, everyone's king. We know from Philippians, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know that's how this all does wrap up. But is he your king today? Have you turned from your sin? Have you confessed, I deserve your wrath, but I look to Jesus who gave his life for me such that looking to him, I am forgiven of my sin and made one of your own. My life is now no longer my own, but yours. If so, if Jesus is your king by faith, there is great news for you. He is coming to establish his kingdom. And this is the great theme that runs throughout the book of Revelation. Jesus reigns and he is returning. He will fulfill the work of his great kingdom. What will it look like? Well, we read in our call to worship this morning on Isaiah 61. What does it look like? It looks like liberty for the captives. The binding up of the brokenhearted. The comforting of those who mourn. There's just no hiding from the brokenness of our world. And try as we may, try as everyone does through various mechanisms and means from, you know, being as wealthy and free as you can be from as addicted to whatever uh, obliterating drug you can get to to try to avoid it that way. Everyone's trying all these different ways to avoid the brokenness of this world and they all fail in their pursuits. There is no hiding from the brokenness of this world. Tragedies like our community has suffered this week are, are, are gut-wrenching reminders of this reality. No matter how great things may go, in a, in, a, in a moment, everything can change. In a blink of an eye, everything can change. Some people will die way too soon, and they'll leave a wake of grieving people. Some of you, beyond what's happened this week, some of you have stories that we could go around and share of the loved ones that you lost way too soon. And, the, and the, the wake of grief that that leaves. Things don't go as we plan. Sicknesses afflict us and the ones that we love. We look around the world and poverty and violence abounds. Wars rage on with no seeming end to them. Just senseless murder and bombing and killing of people for property. It just And the brokenness of the world abounds. Marriages fail. Children are hurt. Violence erupts, innocent lives are taken. And these tough realities, and many more, they sow a deep and persistent discontentment with the world. Just there's got to be something more. It, just a real discontentment. 
And while our discontentment and our disenchantment seems like a problem we're all trying to fix, right? <laughs> like, I, don't, I, shouldn't be, I shouldn't be discontent. I got to find a way to make myself happy. I got to find, I got to be, I got to, okay, everything's going to be okay. I got to get away from my discontentment. I've got to get away from my disenchantment with life. Try to get back this wonder in some uh, artificial way. It is the right reaction to this broken world. It is a right reaction to this broken world because this broken world is not the final hope for mankind. Some utopia that we create by our own strength and our own power in this world is not the hope, the final hope for mankind. There is a better kingdom coming. That is the reality that Advent is pointing towards. Everyone has this longing, this hope for a better world. Sadly, some think it is found through the pursuit of their own kingdom. Some think it's to be found through their own efforts and good fortune in this life. But the scriptures give us the real story. The king is coming with good news for his people. His kingdom is the kingdom you're looking for. His eternal kingdom with an everlasting dominion is the one you're longing for. And so we pause at Advent, we slow down, we hit the brakes, we idle back to sit with the the, the hopeful expectation that our king is coming. Where is our longing directed? Don't be so short-sighted and small that it is directed to some temporal moment here in this life. Let us anchor our longing in the truly significant kingdom of Christ. He is coming to establish it and his reign will have no end. The joy of of being his will be eternal. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see this. I pray that this morning as we just contemplate these things, just this simple truth, behold, he is coming on the clouds. One who is like the son of man who will establish his kingdom, his dominion will be forever. And God, as we long I long, we all long for something more, something of substance, something with gravity, something with enough weight to anchor our souls in the, in the storms of life. God, give us eyes to see and hearts full of faith in your kingdom that you have promised. You have said you will return and set up this kingdom. God, give us eyes to see it. Give us hearts trusting you in it that we might be, though greatly discouraged and disenchanted with the world, <laughs> all the more encouraged that we have a God who rules and reigns, who overcame death itself, who is on his way to return and consummate his kingdom for the full joy of his people in him forever. Give us eyes to see it, hearts rejoicing in it, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.